Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 31 years we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Parker Palmer is a writer, activist, and founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal, a resource center that offers retreats for people seeking to restore passion, commitment, and integrity to their life and work. He is the author of nine books, including Let Your Life Speak and The Courage to Teach. His writings speak deeply to people in many walks of life. His newest book, Healing the Heart of Democracy and the topic of today's forum explores America's political tensions and considers ways to rebuild a democracy that serves the common good. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our honor to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Parker Palmer. Thank you so much, Tim, for a lovely introduction, and all of you for being here. It's wonderful to be back at the forum. We'll be talking about democracy today, and, and the churches have such an important role to play in the renewal of our democracy, and I think of the Westminster Forum as one of the kinds of contributions to our public discourse that can be so valuable in a time of deep division and political toxicity. I suspect that you're all here for the same reason I am, and that is that you care very deeply about democracy, its future, and its current state of ill health. I'm not going to spend a lot of time diagnosing its pathologies at this moment. I think we all know more or less what they are. The public arena has become a divisive place, a place of demonization. I've long said that partisanship is not the problem, demonization is a problem. A place of untruth, a place of irrational discourse. And as a result of these, this cross current of very powerful forces in which a person can drown, I think more and more American citizens have retreated into the private sphere. Um, we've long had an issue in this country uh, with imagining that somehow the whole trajectory of the American experiment is toward making private life a more comfortable place for us as individuals, forgetting that without an active, engaged, and generous public life, there is no private life worthy of the name. We retreat into private life. We leave a void in the middle of the public arena and into that void, many undemocratic or non-democratic powers are eager to rush. When we leave, something else comes in. We, the people who called this democracy into being, we, the people who I think have the, have the biggest chance of calling it back to full health, have disempowered ourselves by exiting the public realm with its abuses and its toxicity and have created a vacuum into which powers like big money, corporate money, have rushed 
to call the tune, to call the signals, and to set the agenda. So we see many public opinion polls which indicate that there is an American consensus around certain critical issues, and yet the people at the center of power so often seem unresponsive to what we would think of as the will of the people. And is it not because our exit from the public realm has left a power vacuum that has resulted in other powers calling the signals uh, in, our, in the highest places of our government? So the question for me is not so much what are we going to do about them? I think that's not a very fruitful question. I think the question is, what are we going to do about us? What are we going to do with, about we the people, about coming back together as a civic community, about that which is within our reach, which is our own way of orienting toward political reality, our own way of orienting toward each other, our capacity to host uh, a civic conversation in a civil way around matters of common concern so that we reoccupy the public realm, reclaim the public space, and begin to call this democracy back to what I think its founders intended. There are many important answers to that question. I don't pretend to have the only answer here today. But at one end of the spectrum, I think, are the answers that have to do with engaging in conventional political activities sending money to candidates of our choice, signing petitions, being sure to vote. But all of that, it seems to me, goes under the rubric of citizenship light, L-I-T-E. <laughs> and as attractive as it may be and as much time as we may spend encouraging each other to do things of that sort, I don't think it's deeply responsive to the kind of critical moment we are in today not the first time in American democracy that we've been in a critical moment, but this is our time, and so we need to respond. The, what, the, the thoughts I'd like to share today are at the other end of the continuum from citizenship light, and they have to do with what I suppose could be called the politics of the heart, which might lead to a book title like Healing the Heart of Democracy. <laughs> One never knows. And I'd like to tell a story from American history that, that indicates to me the depths to which those words might reach. It's a story about Abraham Lincoln. It's a story about the fact that Lincoln, all of his adult life, suffered a severe tension between two profound callings in his life. On the one hand, he had a sense of destiny he felt he was called to some significant kind of public service. And on the other hand, he was haunted from a very young age by what was then called melancholy, what today we would call clinical depression, that led him away from service towards the sort of darkness in which one wants to end his or her life. When Lincoln was a young man in his late teens and early 20s, that problem was so severe that neighbors would take him in from time to time to keep watch over him to make sure that he didn't take his life. Neighbors who sensed the value and the preciousness of this 
human soul and who, of course, had no idea of the role he would ultimately play in American history. Well, those of us who have suffered from clinical depression, I'm one of them, know that when you're in that state, you cannot allow the battle to rage between the darkness and the light in you. You cannot divide yourself between the good guys and the bad guys and try to make sure that the good guys win because the darkness is simply too powerful when you hold it hostile that way and allow it to hold you hostage. What you have to do instead is to say, I am all of the above. I am my darkness and I am my light. And I have to find some way to befriend both forces within me and help them do a co-creative dance to see what I, it is that I have to learn from both sides of what, in fact, I have to understand as my own wholeness. Well, it's not a very big leap from that to what it was that Lincoln did as president at a time when our country was even more profoundly divided than it is right now. Lincoln was the president who held the country together by refusing to divide us into the good guys and the bad guys. Lincoln was the president who held the country together by extending, uh, after Lee had surrendered, a hand of friendship to the Confederacy, to the South. Uh, appearing on the White House balcony before a crowd of ardent Unionists, Lincoln said, I, I refuse to declare that the South has been out of union with these United States. To do so would only further injure and humiliate our friends who have already been injured and humiliated enough. And it is reported that he said at the end of his remarks, let the band play Dixie. It's a song that belongs to all of us and we need to hear it now. He was the reconciler of a nation because he knew what reconciliation felt like and, and the power that it had within his own heart. Those are the depths to which I want to reach in my remarks today. Let me take a next step by quoting Terry Tempest Williams. The quote is on the handout that I think you got when you came in. The writer and activist Terry Tempest Williams, who in a wonderful book called The Open Spaces of Democracy has this to say, the human heart is the first home of democracy. The human heart is the first home of democracy. It is where we embrace our questions, not their questions, our questions. Can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole beings, not just our minds, and offer our attention rather than our opinions? And do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up, ever, trusting our fellow citizens to join with us in our determined pursuit of a living democracy. I think that's a quote that Abraham Lincoln would have applauded. I think he would have understood it from the inside out. I want to say a few things about those 
simple but eloquent words. First of all, Williams here is using the word heart not in the diminished sense that we often use it today as a word that points merely toward emotion or sentimentality. She's using the word heart in its ancient or classical meaning. It comes from the Latin root core, C-O-R, and so it points to the core, C-O-R-E, of the human self where all of our faculties for knowing, doing, and being converge. Emotion is there, intellect is there, will is there, intuition is there, relational bodily knowledge, problem-solving knowledge is there. It's the center of the human self in the way Terry Tempest Williams uses the word. Secondly, by, by locating democracy's first home in the human heart, she puts these problems within our immediate reach. There is something you and I can be doing right now that can contribute to healing the heart of democracy, which is searching our own hearts around the questions that she names in that powerful quote. And we, it can go out from there in ways that I hope to suggest uh, in the next few minutes to those with whom we associate in our daily lives. Third, I want to emphasize this as strongly as I can this quote is not mere writerly rhetoric. It is a historically accurate quote about the point of origin from which all great social transformations have occurred. It's the, the human heart and the imperative of the human heart for human identity and integrity is the sparking point of every great social movement that has ever changed the lay and the law of the land. That's true in Eastern Europe, it's true in South Africa, it's true in Latin America, it's true in our own country, where I call this the Rosa Parks decision, the Rosa Parks decision to claim an undivided life, to witness in public to, the, to a truth one knows in one's heart about one's own human wholeness, and to never yield on that witnessing. This is why Democracy depends on the habits of the heart that its citizens develop. Are they habits that support democracy, or are they habits that would, would make us fit subjects for a totalitarian regime or a fascist uprising? What are our habits of the heart, and how do those inward movements of our hearts translate into external political activities and arrangements. I just used a phrase, habits of the heart, that comes from Alexis de Tocqueville, a French intellectual who visited this country in the 1830s and who went home to France after just a year in this very young country, he himself being a very young 27-year-old, went home to France to write a book called Democracy in America which is arguably still the best book ever written on the subject. Alexis de Tocqueville's gift to us as an outside observer was to point to the importance of what I've come to think of as democracy's infrastructure, democracy's infrastructure, by which I mean and he meant the habits of the heart that its citizens develop and 
the local venues of daily life in which our hearts are formed or deformed. Venues like the family, the neighborhood, the classroom, the congregation, the workplace, the larger reaches of public life where the company of strangers gathers, the sidewalk cafes, the public libraries, the city streets, etc. How healthy are those venues and to what extent are the people who are responsible for those venues helping themselves and others develop and deepen democratic habits of the heart? Those are the questions Tocqueville oriented us toward. Those are the questions that I believe remain critically important today, 175 years after Tocqueville wrote his book. And I believe it's arguably true that America's democracy, excuse me, the infrastructure of America's democracy has fallen into disrepair. And we all know what happens when infrastructure falls into disrepair. Bridges fall into the river, streets blow up in the middle of the city, and in the case of democracy, the higher reaches of political power stop functioning in a way that's responsive to the will of we the people. So I want to take a next step with my remarks by exploring five habits of the heart, very specific habits of the heart that I think we need to re-engage with today or perhaps engage with for the first time in some cases. Five habits of the heart that we can all be thinking about in terms of how are we supporting these in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our congregations, in the workplace, and in those larger reaches of the public life? How can we teach and learn and deepen the habits that help restore democracy's infrastructure? And those of you in the, in the sanctuary here have a handout that lists these habits. I want to say a few words about each of them. Number one, an understanding that we are all in this together. An understanding that we are all in this together. I don't need to explain this one to folks who understand the global interconnections that have been revealed by our current economic crisis or by the ongoing ecological crisis in our world. I don't need to explain this one to folks who know what happens when the top 10 or 20% of Americans hold 85 or 90% of the personal wealth. I don't need to explain it to the millions of Americans whose personal philanthropy makes this country the most charitable nation on the face of the earth by a factor of at least three uh, over the second runner. Nor do I need to explain the fact that we're all in this together to those of us who understand that we live within a social contract that obligates us to pay it forward, to actively support the public schools, for example, from which we benefited when we were young. But not everyone in our country understands these things. Some Americans are still caught up in the fantasy that we can go it alone as individuals and as a nation. 
we need to be working hard in every one of these close at hand venues of life to help our children, our students, our parishioners, our colleagues at work, the strangers we encounter in, our, in public spaces, understand and to relearn ourselves that we are all in this together. It seems like an obvious one, and yet at some level that continues to baffle me, this first habit of the heart seems profoundly missing in American public life these days. This fantasy that somehow we can get along as individuals or as factions without attending to the health of the whole. That takes me to a second vital habit of the heart, which is an appreciation of the value of otherness, an appreciation of the importance of the stranger. We are all in this together, but at the same time, we are a tribal species, and we will always be more at home with members of our own tribe than with others. That is, there will always be a sense of us and them. That seems to me to be one of the ultimate limitations of the human mind. But here's the good news. Us and them doesn't need to mean us versus them. Instead, we can cultivate the ancient virtue of hospitality to the stranger, a virtue found in every one of the great religious and wisdom traditions known to humankind. This virtue of hospitality to the stranger, which always rewards the host at least as much as the guest, and often more so, rewards us by bringing us news from distant places that we will never get to see with our own eyes, that we need to know in order to live at home in our own skins and at home on the face of the earth. I, I'm working now at age 73 with some people in their 20s and 30s. They're trying to teach me about Facebook. <laughs> and we had a three-day meeting at our home a while back in which they were helping the Center for Courage and Renewal take advantage of the digital media that are, can be so powerful in people's lives these days. And I said to them at one point, you know, at age 73, I feel like I'm standing somewhere down the curvature of the earth. <laughs> and I can't see the same horizon that you can see from where you're standing. Right? So I need your eyes and I need your reports about what's coming on the horizon that you're seeing, and incidentally, I need you to speak loudly and distinctly. <laughs> they very kindly said that they needed some of my experience and some tips for journeying, as I have over these years. And, and, and so this, this otherness, these encounters with otherness, whether it's across age lines or racial lines or ethnic lines or sexual orientation lines, helps us learn what we need to know to feel more at home in our own skins and on the face of the earth. This is way beyond tolerance, way beyond tolerance, which has always seemed to me an extraordinarily thin virtue. For some <laughs> For some reason, I've just never been thrilled when someone has said, be of good cheer, I'm willing to tolerate you. <laughs> uh, 
And that takes us to the third habit of the heart, an ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. Because when we have these encounters with otherness, when we cultivate relationships with the stranger across whatever lines you want to name, we will experience tension, the tension of our differences, uh, the, the, the tension of the conflicts that come from seeing things from a different perspective and still clinging to the notion that I'm seeing them more clearly than you are. This, this habit of the heart occupies the center of my list of five habits because it is at the center of American democracy. The health of a democracy depends on our capacity for creative tension holding. I wish we had time to talk at length about the founders of this country who had blind spots we all know about. Their sense of the we and we the people was very pinched. They excluded women, they excluded Native Americans, they excluded enslaved human beings, they excluded white men who didn't own land. And yet, because they had so many differences among themselves, because there is no such thing as a homogeneous group, even of white upper middle class males, because they had so many internal differences. They created a system of government which was in precisely intended to keep the debate going over long periods of time. For example, a system in which a tripartite division of power functions like a loom to hold in tension the threads of our social fabric in a way that allows us to keep weaving and reweaving that fabric over time as it gets tattered and torn. And it's that very tension-holding mechanism that has allowed us, for example, to move beyond the founders on that critical issue of race and gender and justice for all across the board. We have a long way to go, but those issues are still on the table because the founders dedicated themselves to creating a system of government, and I think this is really critical, a system of government in which tension and conflict are not the enemy of social order, but the engine of a better social order. And we have to understand that and embrace that and be willing to enter into that tension and conflict of democracy that, it, that can be an engine of a better social order. That, that's what the civil rights marchers of the 60s did. That's what we need to do again and again and again. Sometimes creating the tension, sometimes holding the tension, sometimes taking the tension towards the next best step, but knowing that we're only setting up yet another tension that will help democracy grow. It's not widely recognized that at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, 30% of the delegates to that remarkable historical occasion walked out refusing to sign the document saying a pox on all your houses. 30%, I'll bet their, or their descendants are really ticked at them, you know? <laughs> you probably belong to some club if your name was there. I love that statistic because 30% is about exactly the percentage of people in my own family that I have a hard time talking politics with. 
And that, of course, means that I have an all-American family, so <laughs> we can all wear badges that say all-American family and let it mean that. So we have these institutions that hold tension creatively, but they don't work as they're meant to work if they aren't inhabited, occupied, by citizens and citizen leaders who have that same creative tension-holding capacity in their own hearts, who can join we the people in an ongoing, complex, confusing, often conflicted discussion about the common good and keep moving stepwise, stepwise, sometimes one forward and two back toward something better. It's a historical breakthrough. There is no other before this country political system that treated tension as anything other than something to be suppressed. And here we have a system of government that treats tension as an opportunity for growth. We need to get with the program and learn how to hold those tensions creatively. A fourth habit of the heart, and I'll be brief about these last two uh, because I want to open time for conversation, is a sense of personal voice and agency. We desperately need in this country to create situations in classrooms, situations in congregations, where people, in, to use a great phrase from Nell Morton, can be heard into speech, into deeper and deeper speech. Many Americans walk around with a wound that says, you don't have a voice worth speaking, and you don't have the capacity to do anything as an individual. Why is that? I think because they've, been, they've grown up in institutions that have made them part of the audience rather than participants. They have been fed with the knowledge of experts downloaded into their empty vessel minds, when in fact every good teacher and every good religious leader knows that his or her task is to help people find out the truth they have within them, identify the voice with which they're able to speak that truth, and then help them journey towards the things they can do to bring that truth into being, not only alone, but in company with others. And that brings me to a fifth and final habit of the heart, a capacity to create community. Democracy is not a spectator sport. It's a full body engagement with each other and with our own destiny. We need community to help us learn to speak and act. We need community to help amplify our words and actions. And we need community to support us when our speaking and acting have hard consequences. It takes a village to do almost everything and sustaining a democracy takes a million villages involving millions and millions of people. So five critical habits of the heart with a few words about each. But if you got lost in all those words and you asked me for just two words to summarize what I think we need, two words to hang on to, Here's what I'd say. We need chutzpah and we need humility. <laughs> to be good citizens of this democracy, we need the chutzpah to say what it is we care about, to make a claim on each other and on people in power. And we need the humility to know that we have to listen to others because none of us has the whole answer. 
The civility we need in the public arena will not come from watching our tongues or from reading Miss Manners, volume three on politics. The civility we need in the public arena will come from valuing our differences, from valuing our differences and recognizing that they can pull us forward. So what can be done? Lots of things. But let me just name a few as I draw these remarks to a close. On a very human scale, take time to listen to a child with care and ask the kinds of questions that help hear that child into speech. Help a youngster understand that he or she has a voice that deserves to be heard, that someone wants to hear it, and that that someone is you. Every time you do that, you're helping a future adult citizen find voice. If you're a teacher, give your students frequent chances to encounter and explore experiences, ideas, and beliefs different from their own. Every time you do that, you're helping them learn how to hold tension in a creative way. A good education teaches us how to deal with contradictions reflectively rather than reactively. Next time you talk with someone who holds political beliefs that, how shall I say it, set your teeth on edge, <laughs> turn from argumentation to inquiry. Ask them honest questions about the content of their convictions. Learn something about their life story that will help you understand why they believe what they do. Remember that the more you know about another person's life story, the less possible it is to dislike, distrust, or dismiss them. If you're active in a religious community, keep asking each other, is this congregation truly safe for diversity? And not only visible diversity, but the invisible forms of otherness that exist among people who look alike. Remind each other of what the writer Anne Lamott once said, quote, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates the same people you do. <laughs> if you're in a situation where someone is demeaning people who are different, don't remain silent and don't pick a fight. Say very simply, those words are personally hurtful to me I want to live in a world where we respect one another. But say it only if you honestly feel that we're all in this together, that you are connected with whoever is being demeaned. I'll bring my remarks to a close with one more story. Back in March, my wife Sharon and I went on the annual civil rights pilgrimage led by Representative John Lewis from Georgia. We spent three amazing days on a bus going from Birmingham to Montgomery to Selma with Representative Lewis, meeting many of the people who were active at that time, people who were once 23, 24, 25 years old and are now closer to my age. We heard the music, we listened to speakers who were both truthful and inspiring. We marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma 
on the 46th anniversary of Bloody Sunday with John Lewis once again at the head of that march at age 71. It was a remarkable experience, not least because virtually every stop we made on that pilgrimage was at a church which had, which had provided the seedbed for this uprising of citizen energy in which whites as well as blacks and many other people joined hands and made a new creation start to come into being. We're on the way back to the Montgomery Airport after marching across the bridge at Selma, and my wife and I are sitting immediately behind John Lewis. And he very quietly starts reminiscing with his aide. I don't think many people heard this, but we did. About a time back in the day, as John Lewis said, when he and a young colleague were in a bus station simply wanting to move to the next place where they felt called. And four young white men with baseball bats came in and beat them nearly to death. He said the station master fled, all of the people in the bus station fled. We lay there in pools of our own blood. In those days, you couldn't get a hospital to treat you, so we had to pick ourselves up, make our way to a safe house and rest as best we could and heal as best we could and get on with our work. And then he said, several years ago, I'm in my office on Capitol Hill, and a white man about my age comes in with his 40-something son. And he says, Representative Lewis, I'm one of the men who nearly killed you all those years ago in that bus station down in Alabama. He said, I've come to tell you that uh, not a day in my life has gone by that I haven't deeply regretted what I did and understood how wrong it was. I've come to apologize and ask if you would accept my apology here in front of my son. I've come to seek your forgiveness and ask if you would forgive me. John Lewis very simply said, I stood, I forgave him, we embraced, we wept, and then we talked. He leaned back in his seat on the bus and very quietly, as if speaking to himself, said, people can change, people can change. At age 71, 46 years later, a man who's in it for the long haul, who cares deeply about democracy, says people can change. That gave me hope not only for them, but for me. Thank you.
Thank you, Parker Palmer. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. And for those of you in the radio audience, we've just had a sustained standing ovation for Parker Palmer. Learn more about the forum online at westminsterforum.org. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter as well. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author, educator, and activist, Parker Palmer. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us here at Westminster for our next forum on Thursday, May 3rd at noon, when Minnesota native Patrick McGran will talk about his three-plus years living in Palestine in Gaza. This event is the kickoff for Westminster Church's four-day Palestinian Art Festival. And now, Parker Palmer, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with other nations that are democratic. Are there other nations doing democracy better right now than the USA? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. My international experience is very limited. I do know this, that within a couple of months of its publication, Healing the Heart of Democracy appeared as a, in translation in Korea. And I've been in active conversation with my friends and colleagues over there about the fact that, that they are wrestling with democracy. They, of course, they've wrestled with it profoundly over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, but they're wrestling with it in a new way that's much akin to how we're wrestling with it. I'm not sure that uh, there is, uh, in, a, in a complex, multicultural, industrialized nation, anything quite like the American democratic experiment. One of our high school students in the audience asks, I am a youth leader born in, into politics and religious cooperation. What do you think the role of youth like me is in all of this? Well, it's a very important role, and it goes way, way beyond helping guys like me know what tweets are. and. <laughs> And, and what Facebook is all about. Um, I take, uh, and I, d I don't mean this in, in, in any sort of um, pandering way, but the truth of the matter is I take great hope from the younger generation who, among other things, cross lines of difference so much more easily and gracefully than people in my generation did at that age. That, that might be partly due to the fact that we, your parents and grandparents, learned something along the way that we wanted to transmit to you. But I think it's somehow in your cultural DNA. Um, I think the communications revolution has opened some of those doors and made some of that line crossing possible for you. So I think the role of young people is critical. But since I'm not a young person, let me speak to people of my age or the next generation down and say our critical role is to help those young people get a leg up. Our critical role is to help those young people find a place in, in this uh, both institutional and extra-institutional mix where they can exercise full citizenship in a way that, that this country desperately, desperately needs. A number of questions coming forward about the Tea Party and the occupying uh, Wall Street movement. 
To what extent do you feel like these two movements reflect similar frustrations with U.S. politics today? Well, a part of the, the book that I, let me, I'll answer the question straight up and say I think there are some real similarities as well as some, as some real differences. I'm not sure that's a straight up answer now that I think about it. <laughs> You know, it's that's a good the problem with being a Quaker. You always have to tell the truth. Just... <laughs> but the, um, what, I, what, I, what I do want to say is that there's a, the prelude of the book is entitled The Politics of the Brokenhearted. I didn't have time in the first part of our program to talk about the way many of us are heartbroken about what's going on politically, culturally, socially in our country and in our world. Heartbroken about everything from rising levels of poverty to the frequency with which we fight wars that have no good outcome, et cetera, et cetera, to, to our failure to support veterans when they come home. Now, as I understand it, more suicides among American troops in the last couple of wars than combat casualties. A quarter or 30% of homeless people in this country being veterans. So there's a lot to be heartbroken about. And there, and there, are, there are two ways for the heart to break. The, there's an explosive way in which the heart breaks into a million shards and often gets hurled like a fragment grenade at the ostensible source of its pain. And, and I can cite you examples on the left as well as the right of heartbreak that has been deployed in that way as a, as a fragment grenade against the enemy. But there's another way for the human heart to break that we all know about, and that is that if it's supple enough, if it has practice, if, if we take the little deaths in life as ways of exercising the heart muscle, that heart need not break apart into fragments. It can break open into new capacity, into a largeness that is capable of holding more of the suffering and more of the joy in life. We see that in our personal lives. Someone loses the very dearest person they ever, they ever were related to. And they go through that long, dark night of grieving and mourning and eventually awaken to the fact that somehow not in spite of this loss, but because of this loss, they've become bigger people. They're more generous. They're less judgmental. They're more at home in their own skin and on the face of the earth because they've been tempered by the heartbreak of loss. I will tell you this, and it's become an important axiom for me, or theorem, whatever it is. Violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering on the personal level and on the national level. We need to find other things to do with our suffering than work it out in violence against ourselves, others, or abroad. To what extent do you think the uh, American uh, limit, limitation of democracy to a two-party system contributes to the health of our democracy? or detracts from it? I think a, a, an important question today is, do we have a two-party system? Um, it, 
if, it, if it's the case, as I think it demonstrably is, that big money, corporate money, increasingly calls the signals on political decision making, and both parties are beholden to money, um, then we don't have a two-party system in an operational sense. We have a lot of political theater about two parties, but under the hood, at an operational level, I'm not sure we do anymore. And, and that's a big problem. And, and that takes me back to our responsibility as we the people to hold conversations, not just one, but millions of them around the country that are across genuine lines of difference, but to hold those tensions in ways that might open us to something better, something larger, something neither side of the debate has yet seen. That's been demonstrated time and time again in American history. Again, I go back to what has opened up since the founders' myopia declared we the people to be a very narrow band of folk. By 2040, this country is going to be over half non-white. That is an outcome that would have been inconceivable to the founders, and they might not even have approved of it. To me, it's the richness of diversity and a great hope and a great blessing. Um, and, and it's been made possible by people holding tension. It's been made possible by the John Lewises who have said people can change. This is a question from a student about the tensions you describe. What tensions between one another should we hold and what tensions should we disregard? <laughs> See, th th that's the problem with students. They really ask important questions. <laughs> So I just urge you to get old and intellectually lazy and <laughs> make it easier on people like me. You're absolutely right. What's behind that question is an absolutely right-on observation, which is that not all tensions are worth holding. And, and there is an act of discernment in, in each and every instance. Um, and, and sometimes it has to do with the unwillingness of the person you're trying to engage to do the dance with you, no matter how sweet the music or how hospitable the space. I can't generalize about the, the conditions under which attention is either worth holding or not worth holding, but developing our own discernment around, around that issue is, I think, a, a, a very important task. I wish I could say more about it, but. Maybe we could talk person to person later about some particulars, see what we're both wrestling with. And we have time for one more question. This is an election year, a presidential election year. Are you hopeful for American democracy, given what you see going on? 30 that seconds or that, less, please. That must have come from, <laughs> what was it? 30 seconds. That must have come from the la another student. I will always put my money on hope. I will always put my money on hope, if for no other reason than it gives me something worthwhile to do. And that's good enough for me. Thank you, Parker Palmer.